This sermon was recorded at Christ Church Overland Park, a congregation that seeks to be a people fully alive in God's kingdom. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all. My name's Amanda. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Happy Epiphany Tide, everybody. As Jason reminded us, this is the season where we remember those moments um, where God is revealed in Jesus Christ. It's the season of the manifestation of God's presence. Yesterday was Epiphany Day. You may or may not have celebrated it, but it's the day that we celebrate when the Magi were led by a secret route, by a star. Um, They brought gifts to Jesus, and they bowed down before him. And I just want to offer you a little bonus, um, if you would check out this picture. So maybe, maybe not. There it is. Okay, so on Friday, remember when it snowed on Friday? (laughs) Friday, of course, was not Epiphany, but it was close enough, and I got... My husband sent me this picture from one of his work sites, and he said, look, the snowflakes look like stars. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Epiphany stars. So since we didn't get to celebrate Epiphany Day together, there you go. Maybe we'll get some star-shaped Epiphany snow tomorrow, too. Um, All that to say, we're going to move several years into the future where Jesus is now an adult and look at another manifestation of God in the baptism of our Lord. And I just want to issue a disclaimer. You guys might remember this scripture from just a few weeks ago in Advent, or at least a similar uh, section of this passage. And so before you grow weary of the passage, just know that we're going to have a slightly different focus today. Um, We'll be focused much less on the herald in the desert and much more on Jesus and the story of his call, the story of his anointing for ministry. And I just want to say, this passage, it's short, but it's loaded with gems, and I've really enjoyed discovering them, so I hope you will too. I want to start by saying a little bit about John through the lens of Mark, and then uh, we'll talk about what happens at Jesus' baptism. So there are three things I'd like to explore. One is Jesus' baptism connects, Jesus' baptism breaks open, and then Jesus' baptism ushers in a new creation. 
So first, a little bit about John through Mark's gospel. Um, first of all, Mark's gospel is thought to be the earliest. It's the shortest. It has the least amount of detail. Sometimes you're like, why did he leave that huge chunk of the story out? Well, it may be because he didn't have it yet. Um, we hear nothing about John's background, for instance. We hear nothing about his miraculous birth to his elderly mother or being filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb, um, his God-given name, his calling, the fact that he's Jesus's cousin. We don't hear anything about that. We can see clearly he is a prophet from his Elijah core style, um, the camel's hair, the leather belt, the locusts and wild honey that he eats, and his deliberate wilderness existence, all evidence of a prophet. Furthermore, it's clear that he's a prophet from his wide reach. Um, he has tons of followers from Judea and Jerusalem who trust him and consider him powerful. Some think he's the Messiah, some think he's Elijah. And so, you know, we know that people came from all over to be baptized by John during a time when baptism was reserved for new converts and for the defiled, for people who needed to be cleansed of their sins, but not for everybody. And so this was a pretty big deal. But they came, they listened. Um, as in other gospels, John points away from himself, always pointing to Jesus, not me, but there's one who's more powerful than I am, who will baptize you not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And so then after this, we don't know if it's minutes or hours, but it's soon after he says this, Jesus appears on the scene. The one who John says is more powerful than I and that he's not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. You know, even rabbis or even disciples of rabbis did not untie their rabbi's sandals. I mean, that was just the lowest thing you could possibly do because feet were gross, et cetera, et cetera. And so John is comparing himself to the lowliest of servants, and yet compared to Jesus, and yet Jesus is the one who will become the lowliest servant for us when he dies for the sins of humanity. And so let's pick things up now from Jesus's appearance to be baptized by John. What happens at Jesus's baptism? Well, first of all, Jesus' baptism connects. And what do I mean by that? John urges you know, everyone in Israel to come and be baptized for two primary reasons, repentance and forgiveness of sins. We can get on board with that, right? Like that's at least in part what our baptism is about. But Jesus is sinless. So why in the world would he need to be baptized? Well, first of all, as an expression of solidarity with humanity. Jesus is fully, not partially human, he is fully God and fully human, and he intends to fully embrace that, fully enter into the human experience. Of course, he is sinless, but by being baptized, he um, received the sins of humanity and takes them with him ultimately into his death, which is also what baptism points to. The sinless became sin for us. And so Jesus fully participates in humanity. He repents of sins that aren't his own, and then he dies a death for those sins that aren't his own. Let me just offer a slightly bizarre contrast, but think about a really bad boss. So maybe like a Bill Lumberg from Office Space. Has anybody seen that movie? You know, he just kind of casually walks around the office with his coffee cup. He doesn't really care about his employees. I don't know if he really does anything. Um, he's oblivious to their 
experience or their state of mind, he's completely detached from them. And it's dehumanizing, right? Well, Jesus, on the other hand, who is much more than our employer, um, is completely connected to our human experience, individually and collectively. He knows it all. Um, you might say he willingly chose the basement desk for the sake of the window cubicle. He embraces our human experience. And so going back to John, the prophet who clearly had a big following and was carrying that mantle that was laid upon him even in the womb, part of that call was calling people to his baptism, uh, which was was repentance from sin. But the problem is our repentance is never complete, right? Now, does that mean that we shouldn't confess our sins, ask forgiveness and repent or turn away from our sins? Absolutely not. That triad of confession, forgiveness, and repentance is incredibly healing. And um, I was just talking to someone yesterday and we were talking about the awful things we've done as Christians. Like, oh, I did that when I was a Christian. Oh my goodness. But, you know, so being a Christian doesn't mean we won't do things we regret, right? But the incredible difference and the incredible gift is that we can then turn to the Lord and say, I messed up, will you forgive me? And he does, he forgives us, and it creates change, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's kind of an underused gift that he's given us. Um, You know, maybe you're walking around with a vague sense of guilt or shame, and it could be that you just need to confess your sins so that you can then hear that you're forgiven. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended, intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And so it's this continuous thing that we have to do. Our repentance is never finished by us, but there is one perfect repenter, and that's Jesus. John baptized partially, Jesus' baptism is complete in that it completes our half-hearted attempts. It's a baptism, not just in water, but in the Holy Spirit, Um, that comes now for him and later for the church at Pentecost. It's a baptism that points to the annihilation of sin, so it completes our baptism, and it results in brand new life. All right, so now I want to talk about the fact that Jesus' baptism breaks open. uh, Once Jesus comes up out of the water in his baptism, we see the first use of the word euthaos or immediately in Mark, although in our passage, I think it says just as, and I'm assuming that's because the translators got tired of the word immediately because Mark uses it 47 times throughout his gospel. It's his favorite. Um, and, And he uses it to indicate a sense of urgency. It gives you that sense of urgency. It gets your attention. It's like a film from the 40s. And so immediately Jesus comes up out of the water, but unlike the other gospels, you know, this happens in all the other gospels, but unlike the other gospels where the heavens were simply opened, in this case, the heavens were torn open. And so let's just take a moment to consider the difference, that word torn. To say something is open implies it can be easily closed, right? You you can almost picture like a little window in the sky opening, the Holy Spirit coming down, the Holy Spirit returning, and the window closing. But when you think about something being torn, it cannot easily be repaired. In fact, it may be irreparable. It's damaged, right? And so when Jesus emerges from the water, we are told the heavens are torn. Mark uses the Greek word schizomenus, which means tearing open. And so you might think of times 
when you hear this phrase of Israel's history, when the waters of the Jordan are parted uh, through Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, so that the way was made for God's people in impossible situations. These were pathways to temporary liberation. But at Jesus' baptism, something new and something much greater than the Jordan River has parted in that it was ripped open permanently, the very dome of heaven. And so let's think about what that means. First, let this be a sign of, a new, of new and irreversible access to God when people did not believe that God was accessible. Uh, they didn't believe they had that direct access. Second, looking back to times of longing and hopelessness, perhaps in your own life, when you really needed to experience the presence of God and, and just couldn't, or even more in the history of Israel, when Israel longed to experience God. Um, for instance, when Isaiah cried out in 64.1, Isaiah 64.1, at a time when God seemed hidden from view, um, inaccessible, he longed on, God, on behalf of God's people to hear him and to see him, and he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And so here, this longing of the centuries has been fulfilled in the moment of Jesus' baptism. The heavens had been ripped open. God heard the cries of his prophets, and the barriers have been removed. God is present among his people. And then finally, the breaking open of the heavens looks ahead to the crucifixion. The same word, schizomenus, is used in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, when the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. That same word is used the very moment that Jesus gave, gave up his spirit. And so if there's any doubt before that there was access to God, I think that doubt has lessened at this point. Everything has changed. It's right after that, you might remember that a bystanding centurion says, surely this was the son of God. So Jesus' baptism is a better path to liberation than even the parting of the seas. Finally, Jesus' baptism ushers in a new creation. So just think back for a moment on the original creation account in Genesis chapter one. There's chaos, the earth is formless and void, darkness covered the face of the deep the whole, while the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then out of darkness, God, out of the darkness, the chaos, the water, the formlessness came the voice of God speaking life and beauty and order and creation into the nothingness. And then in Jesus' baptism, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are present. It's one of those great Trinitarian passages. And I just want to read from verses 9 through 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So the spirit descends, not as a dove, the spirit is not a dove, but like a dove. So I imagine it's something like this, um, onto Jesus. The spirit of God hovers not over the dark and chaotic primordial soup, <laughs> but over a human being. And so this was a sign that new creation had begun in Jesus. It was also a sign that just as God transformed what was formless and void, he intends to transform humanity, thanks be to God. This time, when we hear the voice of God 
speaking into this new creation. Someone, you know, maybe John, definitely Jesus, perhaps the crowd, hears these words in this very intimate moment between the Father and the Son. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And it is this incredibly intimate moment where the Father is speaking to the Son, but it reminds us of the transfiguration later on where the Lord says, this is my Son, listen to him. And it's, it's a very similar moment, but in that moment, he's getting the attention of Peter, James, and John and saying, this is Jesus, but here it's as if the Father is, you know, no one else is around, and he's speaking these incredible words to him. In this wilderness place, you know, where so often prophets called out for God, um, where Israel sinned and wandered and followed is a new sign of life. New creation is beginning in Jesus his baptism was his place of anointing, his call to ministry. It started right here, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And some people even say in his humanity, he had an ecstatic experience of the Holy Spirit, including a vision and God's audible voice. But I think the most important thing here is Jesus had an experience of divine love. He knew in this moment that he was divinely and deeply loved. And it was so profound, it enabled him and a few verses later to immediately, of course, be led in the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. That love led him to do that. And so new creation begins in a hopeless place. Affinity uh, is established between us and God at Jesus' baptism. And like those crossing the Jordan all those times, we too will, are liberated. But this time it's permanent and this time it's from sin and death this incredible work began the moment Jesus was anointed as the Messiah at his baptism, followed by being told that he was loved, that he was God's son, and um, that God was pleased with him. And so there's power in this moment. There's power in being called. You know, Jesus is baptized, but not to, you know, go off and do his own thing, but as the firstborn of the new creation of our family, of the new humanity, He's baptized because all of us are baptized and he fully participates in that human experience. But even more, this moment where the father tells the son that he loves him and he's well pleased with him, this incredibly powerful moment is a moment for us. It's a moment that really God also says, you are my son, you are my daughter, that he loves you and that he's well pleased with you. And so it follows that we're called to something really hard, but also really beautiful, and that's to continue the work of Christ. Um, but let's first get a hold of that divine love. So just to close, this whole scene made me think about who remembers Mr. Rogers? We all do, of course. Um, sadly, as a kid, I did not like Mr. Rogers. I thought he was weird, but I came to love him as an adult. I was a jerk. I don't know what my problem was, but I, I love him now. I think he's one of the best people who ever lived. Anyway, not Jesus, but um, so Mr. Rogers, he gave this acceptance speech in 1997, and it was really short, but part of the speech, he just says to the audience, I want you to, to just take 10 seconds to remember he doesn't say these exact words, but essentially, someone who loved you and was well pleased with you. And by five seconds in, half the room was in tears as they remembered that person, that 
imperfect human being who inspired them to become the people they were today, that day. And so you might imagine that person, that person who loved you enough to change you and to cause you to want to do something wonderful. And then consider that that is a mere sliver of God's love for you, just a sliver, because God loves you like he loves Jesus. Amen? All right.